Hello and welcome to episode 66 of Sensational She Geek, live from Yancey Street. You might call this episode 6666 because it is the 66th episode being recorded on the 6th day of the 6th month. So do with that information what you will, I guess. Uh, on this episode, we do have a lot of really fun stuff to talk about. Not so much in news, a few minor things. I have finally gotten caught up with a good amount of comics, so we are talking comic book picks finally, including Strange Number 3, Captain Marvel 38, Road to Dark Crisis, and then briefly Harley Quinn 15, Alice Ever After Number 2, and Marvel's Voices Identity. Uh, we have the comic book polls for this week, which has a actually surprising amount of DC comic stuff and a good deal of one shots number ones and annuals and whatnot so stick around to hear about those and of course our three um shows that we're covering on the yancey street podcast currently are the obi-wan kenobi show on disney plus we'll be covering episode three on this episode young justice which we will is on hbo max and we'll be covering episode 24 or sorry 25 of the fourth season on this episode and finally star trek strange new worlds the premiere season we'll be talking episode five from Paramount Plus. Finally, to wrap up this, I don't know, we'll see if it's shorter or not episode, we're going to talk Ms. Marvel's show prep. The show does begin this Wednesday, June 8th on Disney Plus. I am super excited for it, no matter how bitter I am that they, for whatever reason, decided to align it with the Obi-Wan Kenobi premiering at the same time on Wednesdays. That is all beyond me, but I'm still super excited for this show. Um, I'm seeing a lot of people who don't seem to either fully grasp um, the content or the characters or the themes. There seems to be a little bit of um, something missing from what a lot of people are kind of expecting. Their expectations seem to be very lax. So I would very much like to cover the great important content that the show is going to bring as well as, of course, um, the references from the comics, things that you'll want to know from that. And I'll also be talking a little bit about uh, everything we know about the Marvels. This is actually going to be taken from a thread on Twitter by at House of Photon. I'll have it the, the Twitter thread linked down there if you want to look at the original. Um, but they did a great job of compiling all of that. So just to get you a little bit more excited about the Ms. Marvel show, since she will be appearing in the Marvels, we will talk about what we know so far about the Marvels being, of course, the Captain Marvel sequel. As usual in each episode's description, you can find an invite link to the Yancey Street Discord. If you're listening to an older episode, go to whatever the newest episode is and you can use that invite link because they do expire after seven days. Uh, the Discord is just a place for like-minded folks to really of all kinds to come. Uh, we have a general chat. You don't have to constantly talk about comic stuff. But if you have nowhere to talk about these things and you would like to, this is a place for that. If you would like to find me most easily, you can find me on Instagram. My username is Anna with the comics. If you would like to keep up with any podcast updates, I do that mostly on Twitter, where you can find the, me under username Savage She Geek because Sensational was too many characters. 
I also have my website. It is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. I have been working on fixing up the site a whole lot so that it's still relevant in addition to the podcast. That includes a beginner's guide to both comics and manga, covering any information that you might need to take your first real steps into the worlds of comics, including recommendations for Big Two Cape Comics, indie comics, graphic novels, and, as I said, manga. I also have some reading orders of various leading ladies, with Clea, Madeline Pryor, and Magic as three very relevant characters, specifically at Marvel at the moment, and anything that you want to find possibly on my site that is um, pre-February 2021, you will find written on the proper blog there, which is where I covered all of this same kind of content, just as the blog before I started the podcast. You can also find my pod notes, which are my podcast notes for each episode, um, that basically go over all the content of what I'm going to be covering each week. It's there for reading the podcast instead of listening, and also, of course, for those who are hearing impaired, if they would like to keep up with the podcast week to week as well. Finally, you can find links on my site to everywhere that you can listen to the podcast. Uh, You can also find that on my link tree, which is also linked on my site and in the description below. And as for where you can listen to the podcast, you can do that pretty much anywhere that podcasts are hosted. Um, If there's anywhere that you can't find it, let me know and I would be happy to fix that. You can also listen to the podcast on YouTube, where I post each episode in a playlist in order, just in case that's easier form for you to listen to from. And I also post action figure review videos on my YouTube channel as well. You can find me on there under Sensational She Geek. Uh, I have been posting a lot more imports recently, as I've pretty much given up on Hasbro's Hasbro's Marvel Legends, Uh, but I have a big backlog of Legends videos, though, up there, so you can check all those out, including the HasLab Sentinel. Two new uploads that you can see up there today are uh, some new anime imports from SH Figure Arts. One is Kefla, the legendary Super Saiyan fuse of Khalifa and Kale from the final arcs of Dragon Ball Super. You can also see Chibi Sailor Moon from Sailor Moon, who is one of my favorite characters, and she is my fourth Sailor Moon figure for my collection. I do also have a podcast Patreon under, again, Sensational She Geek. It's set up for donations to support the podcast because I do have a regular job, so any amount of time that I can spend less working on my job, I can spend more working on the podcast. And each episode now comes with a 20 or so minute podcast after show, as I'm calling it. It's posted exclusively on the Patreon page, as there are only a few of them done so far. I've made the last couple available for for public viewing several days after the initial post for patrons, so you can check and see if that's the kind of Patreon in- content that you may be interested in. Finally, I do have uh, some links for Kofi, which is like a bio creator, a coffee, uh, Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, etc., all linked on the link tree. Again, in the description, all for donations towards the podcast, as well as some things, uh, some stickers and things on Redbubble, which I am struggling with as a company. Redbubble, they're a little bit difficult, so hopefully I will be selling some more really fun branded uh, merch type stickers from my own site in the coming future. As I mentioned at the beginning, the news is a little bit 
uh, briefer this week is, is a number of good points, but they are all smaller points. So we'll just do it all in a little bit of a chunk here, uh, starting with the Orville, which um, is back. Shockingly bad premiere episode, if I uh, can say that. Um, and I don't seem to be the only one who thinks so. It was uh, the acting was quite so-so, and that is the nicest way of saying it. And uh, the plot, there was there was really just the one plot line. Um, and while I understand the points that they were trying to make and everything, it very much seemed like, pardon the uh, terminology choice, but beating a dead horse. Um, I feel like that was a terrible terminology choice, but it's the best the best term I can think of to fit how it felt. Um, so I'll keep watching it. I will not be covering it the way that I cover any of the other sci-fi fantasy shows on here, though. Additionally, in brief news, Joe Quesada has exited Marvel after his 20-year, well, longer than 20-year career at the publisher. He was a longtime executive and former editor-in-chief and has held the title of executive vice, vice president and creative director of Marvel Entertainment since 2019. This news was not very uh, well-spread or well-talked about, I think mostly because it's not very surprising. He's kind of been on his way out for the past couple of years based on how his career has gone there. Definitely taken a little bit of a step back. And now as of June 1st, he's officially out of the publisher. Whether that will have consequences of any kind in the future, positive or negative, I guess time will tell. Uh, additionally, we have two premiere dates for Disney Plus for Marvel projects. The first is Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, that obviously being something that's been out in theaters already, but that will be premiering on Disney Plus this month on the 22nd of June. So if you have not had a chance to see the movie and you would like to, or would just like to watch it again, go ahead and do that on Disney Plus. Um, it's really just a couple of weeks away now, so it's not too far at all. But later in August, August 10th sees the premiere of the Disney animated series I Am Groot, which is vaguely described by Marvel as, quote, following baby Groot's glory days growing up and getting into trouble among the stars. So this is not going to be Groot as the reduced, I guess you would say, baby Groot who was fully grown and then... Uh, planted by Rocket and grown back from a sapling. This is actual baby Groot, young Groot, who was um, very mysterious. We don't really know anything actually about that part of uh, Groot's life. I think it has been very briefly delved into in his comic series that happened at some point recently. Uh, but that's about it. So this will be, if nothing else, a nice, light, fun bit of entertainment. In the world of Madame Web, we have a new casting announcement for the apparent upcoming Madame Web movie. Actor Tahar Rahim is set to join Dakota Johnson in the Sony Madame Web film. He is joining Sydney Sweeney, Celeste O'Connor, and Isabel Merced, as well as director... Is that correct? Oh, yes, director S.J. Clarkson. Uh, we also have screenplay already by Matt Sazama and Burke Sharpless, um, with Kareem Sanga having penned a previous draft. No idea who any of those people are, but if the names mean something to you, congratulations. Uh, point being, the Madame Web movie continues to move forward. 
as of, I believe, today at the Netflix Geeked, whatever it is that, that is, uh, we, are, we got our first image, or uh, clip, rather, of Jenny Ortega as Wednesday Adams in the forthcoming Netflix Wednesday show. It'll be coming out later this year. Um, it looks really fun. I mean, literally all it is is her stepping forward in her nice little dress. You get the, what is the hand guy? I don't remember his name. Um, the hand guy. Shoot, why can't I remember his name? Whatever he is. Um, I want to say Uncle Fester, but Uncle Fester is the character, the the, the bald dude. Um, I don't see an issue with this. I'm already very tired of, of hearing people go on and on about how they're tired of remakes and nothing's original in Hollywood. Let people enjoy things. Can we do that? Can we let people enjoy things? Um, on that note, I will not be speaking much more on Gotham Knights because I don't particularly care about it, to be completely honest. The more that we see about it, the less interested I kind of am. We did get a trailer this past week. Uh, I, I imagine it was whatever they showed at the DC showcase, what's it, a few weeks ago. They officially put that online. So if you're at all interested in the CW, Children of Supervillains, Gotham Knight show, um, then that's there for you to see. Uh, I, I am kind of over the CW shows, uh, she says, as she checks the clock to see when Rosmill, New Mexico will be back. I know it's a bad show, okay? I know it's bad. It's like a stupid guilty pleasure thing. Any case, um, that's probably the last time I'll mention Gotham Knights until it comes out. I'm not super excited for it. If you are, again, good for you. Let people enjoy things. Finally, um, there are rumors that well, it's actually confirmed that Daniela Melchior from, uh, let's see, James Gunn's Suicide Squad will be appearing in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Um, it was confirmed late last year that she will not be appearing as Moon Dragon, which had been previously speculated. Um, and so current speculation is that she will appear as Phyla Vell. The Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 did finish filming last month, um, as, unless that was the Christmas special that I was looking at. But um, I, I am a little bit concerned in any case. I don't have an issue with, I, I don't particularly care what race they cast Philavelle as. What concerns me is James Gunn's notoriety for taking bright and shiny um, female characters and making them very grungy. Um, there's a number of examples I won't go further into, but I would just like to kind of, you know, not do that again. <laughs> but we'll see how that all goes. We don't know for sure what her role is. Um, I'm kind of hoping that it won't be that, obviously, but we'll see. Time will tell. As promised, we do actually have comic books to talk about this week, things that have been coming out the past week or so, <laughs> since I am catching up on being quite behind on my comic book reading. Um, and things that we're going to be covering are Strange number 3, Captain Marvel number 38, Road to Dark Crisis, which I guess was just a one-shot, but we'll say number 1, Harley Quinn number 15, briefly, Alice Ever After number 2, and Marvel's Voices Identity. So starting up with Strange number 3, I am notoriously the master of Clea. That sounds wrong. I am notoriously the uh, most educated Clea fan. Uh, if you weren't aware, I'm not even tooting. I'm not. I'm not exaggerating. 
I have read her history forward and backward and studied her and done all this crazy stuff. But in any case, um, so I have thoughts, you know, about anybody's interpretation of her. But in this issue, um, it's getting a little bit better than the last issue. I still feel like Jed McKay does not have the passion for the character that had him write Felicia Hardy so, so perfectly. Um, he does Cleo well, sure, but it, does, it, it clearly lacks that bit of passion uh, that he has for characters like Felicia. In this issue, Clea goes after the gangster known as the Rose, new character, to find where the Blasphemy Cartel are hiding. And then she ends up turning his men into snakes, which was a pretty cool move. When she ends up getting to the Blasphemy Cartel, they try to use magic to escape. She follows them and they use the Sands of Nisanti to take away her magic and try to blast her to pieces with whatever high-powered guns they had. Um, but as a fall teen, her magic, well, her non-human magic, her non-earthen magic, which is basically the majority of the magic she has, is not affected by a spell from the earthen plane that takes away earth magic. So, uh, she's unharmed completely and traps them in the stone pillar of Umar, as she calls it, aka turning them into stone. However, their facility, it turns out to be made up just of computers, so this is not their base. At the Sanctum the next day, Wong and Clea discuss. He has some memory of the cartel, but his mind is a little bit muddled about it, no doubt. Whatever past he has with them, they tried to wipe from his memory. Then we get an emissary from the Antarctic warlord who arrives, aka Umar, Clea's mother, announcing that she'll be attending dinner with them tomorrow, and a list of dietary requirements will follow, which was a hilarious little detail. Um, a little bit of a note of this scene, while I like the general, what, what, what they went over, uh, Clea and Wong are making what looks like homemade meatballs and sauce together. I hate that. I, I love meatballs and sauce, spaghetti, great, awesome, tastes good. I hate that they're making it here. Spaghetti and meatballs is the pizza of home-cooked foods. You want an easy homemade food and you aren't creative? spaghetti and meatballs and it translates to art in my opinion as well so anytime an artist like doesn't know what people should be eating here i'll just give them spaghetti it's easy or i'll give them pizza they'll just having takeout pizza or chinese food i hate that it's so lazy be creative she's clear you think she has she can she can make homemade food she can do better than spaghetti and meatballs come on and wong he can definitely do better than spaghetti and meatballs Ugh, okay, rant over, sorry. Um, also, the blasphemy, blasphemy cartel, uh, we finally see their actual headquarters and their leader, Director Nunn is his name, who plans to use a Lazarus agent to attack Clea at her home in the next issue. And my god, these villain names and designs are so dumb. This feels like James Tiny and Batman, who just was chalking out the bad villain rap left and right. This is not Batman in 2020. Please, please do better. Judd McKay, this is, these are not good villains, not good new characters. I'm sorry, but it's the truth. <laughs> Moving on, uh, a little bit briefly, Captain Marvel number 38. Um, I came upon the end of this issue way faster than I expected. Um, I guess the majority of it was pretty much just, um... 
pretty much just binary going around doing hero stuff. Uh, she likes cats, obviously. Especially after the last issue, which I'm still mad at Kelly Thompson for killing a cat to prove why life is sacred. And then she's still gonna go and make Binary a villain in the next couple of issues. Oh, I am mad about that. Um, and it just doesn't make sense why that would happen. But she ends up questioning her identity when people confuse her for Carol and all that stuff. Again, not something that needs to put somebody on a villain route. But here we are. And then at the last, like, two pages, you see Carol is being held in a magical prison by Agatha Harkness, who it looks like has teamed up with Enchantress, no doubt due to Carol's meddling with Enchantress to stab her in the back by stabbing the future son in the back. It's a long, kind of boring story. Uh, and Scarlet Witch is there as well. Um, possibly, it's kind of ambiguous, possibly in a form of bonds of her own, um, but she's very ashamed to be there, clearly one way or another, so, um, kind of curious how that will go. I am more curious how Kelly Thompson is going to manage to, um, make me end up hating the character of Binary, or whatever it is that the intention is for making her a villain. In Road to Dark Crisis, there were five different stories. Um, it kind of starts off by reiterating that Black Adam showed back up one day and announced the Justice League are dead. That took place in the Free Comic Book Day DC Road to Dark Crisis, whatchamacallit, that came out on Free Comic Book Day. Uh, for the five stories that we go through, um, really didn't like the majority of them, to be honest. Uh, the first one, I know the art was done by somebody legendary who I can't recall the name of at the moment, but it looked pretty trash. Uh, by the end of the story, you could tell that they are an artist who is very much familiar with the original Batman and Superman characters, and so having him draw Nightwing and Son of Kal-El Superman they look like children wearing their father's suits and it does not look great. Uh, but they talk about how heroes come back from the dead all the time and Nightwing says, or, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Not Clark. Clark's son, John. There we go. John says, uh, do people don't always come back, do they? And Nightwing says, no, not all the time. Remembering, like, Alfred and his parents, which I think are, like, two of the only examples in the entire DC universe. So really... They usually do, to be honest. They, like, 98% of the time, they do. Uh, number two, issue two, had, or uh, uh, story two, had way better art. It was about Wally and Linda. They talked to Iris about Barry's disappearance, and then Wally and whoever the character Ace is, which apparently I completely missed their addition to the DC Universe, play whack-a-mole with villains in uh, Central City or wherever they are. The third story was a Green Lantern story starring Hal Jordan, who I don't particularly care for, and Jackson Hyde, which I had to take note that the artist drew Jackson notably uglier than Hal. Hal was a very manly face, and Jackson he drew like a ugly teenager. Just saying. Uh, the fourth one was by, I believe, Philip Kennedy Johnson. Uh, not a damn clue what that one was about absolutely none completely over my head don't even know what the characters were absolutely clueless uh but number five was stephanie phillips and i enjoyed this most than any of them it was about nocturna and uh stephanie is it stephanie brown yeah stephanie brown uh batgirl which was really nice uh caused me to delve into some research on the character of nocturna 
I would read her if she came back for anything as a villain or as a, you know, just a character. I would, I would be into it. Very briefly, Harley Quinn number 15, we have Batwoman broke her out of prison in the last issue. They do track down Verdict here and almost kill her. She winds up being extremely predictably Kevin's girlfriend, as I literally predicted in the last issue. Alice Ever After number two is by Dan Panosian. Alice is taking tons of medicine in her asylum. She is befriended by a dude, I think his name was Michael. Uh, they go off and uh, I had more notes about this, but the app that I take notes on mysteriously deleted all of them. Uh, but there was something about them drinking liquid heroin and then being caught. So good for them <laughs> or not, I guess. And finally, Marvel's Voices Identity. Uh, we had, let's see, I have four stories in this one. They were all pretty good. The first one was the longest as usual with Jimmy Woo and Shang-Chi fighting or pretending to fight rather and pretending to hate each other and being under brainwashing while actually waiting to be rescued by their fellow Asian superheroes. The second story, Ms. Marvel fates Cameron, her former crush turned villain. Fun fact, he will be showing up in the Ms. Marvel TV show, so keep an eye out or ear out or whatever for that. When he almost gets the best of her again in this story, her fellow Asian heroes step in, offering a shoulder to cry on as well when it's all said and done. We also have a story on Mantis facing her multiple identities, and at the end she takes on a more human skin tone to portray that side of her. This definitely uh, caused me to do some research on Mantis, who I know ultimately very little about. I know a little bit more about her now. I was not aware that she is actually half Vietnamese and was sent to Vietnam as an 18-year-old to live a human life before becoming, uh, you know, fulfilling her celestial Madonna role. Um, so anybody who's, you know, questioning her Asian heritage as a at least part alien, there you go. I have done the research. Finally, the fourth story was really, really cute. Probably my favorite. It was uh, Wong having a, what looked like a standard day for him at the Sanctum Sanctorum, fighting monsters and decidedly not asking for credit or even taking credit. Um, when Steven comes home and is a big ego showman about his own day, talking about all the stuff that he was on TV for and did all these interviews. And he asked Wong what he did and Wong said, oh, I just bought some cookies. It's, it says a lot about his character and honestly so much about Steven's and like characters. <laughs> Moving on now to the comic book polls. These are things coming out tomorrow, Tuesday, June 7th, if it's DC Comics, and Wednesday, June 8th for everything else. But as usual, do contact your local comic book shop or comic book supplier otherwise and get confirmation on when they release their DC Comics because some shops just do it all on Wednesday for you know, ease's sake, and I do not blame them. So we're going to go over a number of, like I said, number ones and one shots in this, uh, in this week's pick poll list. Um, starting off with code 45, number one, I believe this is the third week that I have solicited this one or had this on my pull list. Uh, so we're not going to go over it again for time and sanity's sake, but hopefully, uh, I have finally gotten the correct release date and that will be this week. Um, did you hear my nose do that? That was weird. Doctor Who Origins number one of four comes this week also from Titan Comics by Jody Hauser, Roberta Ingranata, and Warnia K. 
Sahadewa, I'm sorry, cover by Simone DeMeo. This is about the, uh, the fugitive doctor who we met during the, uh, uh, it was the Jodie Whittaker 13th doctor iteration. We met her there, which by the way, I really enjoyed. I, the, the hate that it gets is so unnecessary. But anyway, um, she, we saw her in at least one, if not more episodes, really, really enjoyed the character for whatever brief amount of time that she was there. Um, so now this Doctor Who Origins is going to be all about her. Love it. It says, a brand new, never-before-seen adventure featuring the fugitive Doctor in her comics debut, working for the mysterious Division... I imagine it's supposed to say division, but it it says divisoin, so we'll see. On a dangerous assignment, the doctor uncovers something insidious afoot. Discover why this regeneration became known as the fugitive. And this does spin out of the free comic book day 2022 Doctor Who comic. So if you uh, picked that one up, you are set to go. Potions Incorporated number one comes from Mad Cave Studios this week by Eric Burnham and Stella Dia with a cover by Natasha Alterici. It says, The call of adventure always seems to hang up whenever Randallgast Jones tries to answer it, leaving him facing the, du- the dulled future of working in his family's successful potion shop. But when a powerful artifact is stolen from his parents and puts them under a terrible curse, Rand finally gets the quest he's been after his whole life. He and his siblings set off to find the missing artifact, and its trail leads them from their homeland of Primaterra to the very strange realm of Earth. I mean, fantasy, but flipped, where instead of going to a fantasy world, it's fantasy coming to an Earth world. Sign me the heck up. Aquaman Andromeda, number one of three, comes from DC Black Label by Rom V and Christian Ward, who is, it's, it's going to be a great team, I can guarantee it. Um, what it says is, deep in the Pacific Ocean, at the farthest possible distance from any island since Point, since Point Nemo, the spaceship graveyard, since the dawn of space-time, Oh, sorry, since the dawn of the space race, the nations of the world have sent their crafts there on splashdown to sink beneath the silent seas. But there is something else at Point Nemo, a structure never made by human hands. And that structure seems to be waking up. The crew of the experimental submarine Andromeda, powered by a mysterious black hole drive, have been chosen to investigate this mystery, but they aren't the only ones pursuing it. Anything of value beneath the ocean is of anything of value beneath the ocean is of value to the master pirate Black Manta, and anything that attracts Black Manta attracts Arthur Curry, his lifelong foe, the Aquaman. But heaven help them all when the doors of the mystery at Point Nemo swing wide to admit them. That sounds friggin' cool. Sign me the heck up. I think I said the, the last comic, but it still stands. Astronaut Down number one comes from Aftershock Comics by James Patrick with art by Rubine. Douglas Spitzer wants to be one of the, quote, astronauts selected for the crucial Mitzen Pulitzer. 
And just like the and just like astronauts like Buzz Aldrin and Sally Ride, Douglas, Douglas is brave, adaptable, and self-sacrificing. He's one of the program's best candidates. But if he qualifies, Douglas won't be traveling through space. He'll be launched into alternate realities on a desperate mission to save Earth from a horrific crisis that has our world on the brink of extinction. Unfortunately, it's a mission where everything will go wrong, where Douglas, Douglas is. Douglas's training. Why do they spell it like that? They spell it Doug dash L A S. That's weird. Douglas's training and very humanity will be put to the test and where a deep seated secret could sabotage everything. Poison Ivy number one of at least six, but I'm not really sure if there's going to be a real number there. It comes from, of course, DC Comics by G. Willow Wilson and artist Marcio Takara. We have covers for this number one issue by Jessica Fong, Warren Liu, Chris Anka, which is a Pride variant, Dan Mora, Nick Robles, Frank Cho, David Nakayama, Josh Burns, Kunka, Nathan Serzi has two, and then Sozomika and Will Jack. Pamela Isley has been a lot of things in her life. A living god, a supervillain, an activist, a scientist, and dead. In a new body that she didn't ask for, and, a new, and with a renowned, renewed sense of purpose, Ivy leaves Gotham and sets out to complete her greatest work, a gift to the world that will heal the damage dealt to it by ending humanity. Spinning out of the pages of Batman-ish, DC is proud to present the unbelievable next chapter and blah blah blah. We know that part. Um, what I'm really hoping from this series is that they will clarify the in a new body that she didn't ask for sentiment. Is that referencing the Tom King resurrection or is that referencing her being recombined by the gardener et al? It's very unclear. Nubia, Queen of the Amazons, number one of six, comes from DC this week by Stephanie Williams and artist Aletha Martinez. Covers for this number one will be by Kari Randolph, with variants by Jay Lee, Kevin Wada as a Pride variant, and Aletha Martinez. Nubia may be queen, but not all Amazons call Themyscira home, which prompts the new monarch to leave Themyscira for the first time in decades to serve her people in a way Hippolyta never had the opportunity to. Now, as she embarks on her tour through man's world to show off the newly established, newly established sisterhood, she will be met with joy, distrust, and anger. As she travels to the homes of both the Bana Magdal and Escasita tribes, something lurks in the shadows following her every move. A villain from Nubia's mysterious past has been waiting for the day the queen joined out the outside world again, waiting for the day the queen joined the outside world again, and they're ready to make her wish she never left the paradise. Taking place right after the Nubia Coronation Special, a second miniseries for the fan-favorite Amazon begins. You won't want to miss the exciting new adventures of the one and only True Queen, brought to you by Blah Blah. Uh, very excited for this one. Spoiler alert, she's probably a character from Nubia's pre-Amazonian past. I guess just human past. <clears throat> Multiversity Teen Justice number one of six from DC Comics will be by Ivan Cohen and Danny Lore with art by Marco Faia. I'm guessing that's how you say it. It's F-A-I-L-L-A. Covers for this first issue are by Robbie Rodriguez with variants by Stephanie Hans, which is gorgeous, honestly, Stephen Byrne, Bengal, and Marco Faia. 
says Kid Quick, the future state Flash, and their fellow heroes, Supergirl, Robin, Aquagirl, Clarion, the Witch Girl, and Troy, take center stage in a miniseries that rocks Earth-11 to its core. Co-writers Evan Cohen and Danny Lore join rising star Marker Faio, Faia for the incredible debut issue, which begins with an attack by the Hive and ends with a Church of Blood. What do Sister Blood's true... What is Sister Blood's true mission among the lost souls of New York City? Can Teen Justice get through their growing pains fast enough to learn the answer in time to stop it? And what role will the mysterious Raven, the brooding hero who has refused to join the team in the past, play in the ultimate battle? Also this week, DC Pride 2022 number one is obviously a one-shot. Uh, this is coming from writers Devin Grayson, Yvonne Cohen, Teeny Howard, Greg Lockard, Alyssa Wong, Stephanie Phillips, Danny Lore, Stephanie Williams, Jadzia Axelrod, Danny Fernandez, Kevin Conroy, Travis Moore, Ted Brandt, Rose Stein, and Nicole Maines. Artists, on the other hand, are Laverne Kinzierski, Rose Stein, W. Scott Forbes, Travis Moore, J. Bone, P. Craig Russell, Lynn Yoshi, J.J. Kirby, Megan Hetrick, Nick Robles, Brittany L. Williams, Jess Taylor, Evan Cagle, Zoe Thorogood, Samantha Dodge, Guglio, Guglio, I'm sorry, Macaone, oof, that is super Italian sounding, and Rye Hickman. Fun fact, Rye Hickman is a fantastic artist. They're a non-binary artist who used to go by the name Jen Hickman. And they are, um, uh, I know them from Lonely Receiver, which is a fantastic story. Uh, definitely check that one out if you are into weird techno horror stuff. The stories that we're going to be having in this month's or this year's Pride issue is called Super Pride, Confessions, Special Delivery, Are You Ready for This?, a World Kept Just For Me, The Gumshoe in Green, Think of Me, Public Display of Electromagnetic Spectrum, The Hunt, Bats in the Cradle, Up at Bat, and Finding Batman. Jeez, a lot of bat stories. It says DC's 2022 celebration kicks off with blah bloody blah 13 new stories, including John Kent, Nubia, Tim Drake, Kid Quick, Aquaman, Jackson Hyde, Joe Mullion, Green Lantern, Alicia Yo, The Ray, Harley Quinn, Poison Ivy, Batwoman, and more also includes a kickoff to Multiversity Teen Justice. We have covers by Phil Jimenez and variants by Jen Bartell and Joshua Swaby. Also this week, Dark Crisis number seven, sorry, number one of seven kicks off the Dark Crisis event. Uh, this is obviously DC Comics by Joshua Williamson, Daniel Sampere, and Alejandro Sanchez. It says, Crisis on Infinite Earths, Infinite Crisis, Final Crisis, and now Dark Crisis. Sidebar, they said they were never going to do a crisis event again. Back to it. The epic event, years in the making, is finally here. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and the rest of the Justice League are dead unlikely. The remaining heroes are left to protect the world from an onslaught of violent attacks by DC's greatest villains. Can the legacy heroes step out of the shadows of the classic heroes to form a new Justice League? And will that be enough to stop darkness greater than anything they've ever faced from destroying everything? Don't miss out on the first issue of the Blockbuster Run of the Summer. Will anything permanently change at the, uh, at the end of this? What do we always say, kids? Unlikely. <laughs> but it should be fun. 
Jane Foster and the Mighty Thor number one of five is legacy number 20 going through the Jane Foster stuff, uh, specifically Jane Foster, Valkyrie, and actually I should look into that to, to check that one. But anyway, obviously for coming from Marvel by Torin Grombeck and Michael Dowling. Cover is by Ryan Stegman with variants by Peach Momoko, Martin Cocolo, Taurin Clark, and Carmen Carnero. When Mjolnir comes crashing through Jane Foster's apartment window, she fears the worst has happened to Thor, as Asgard's greatest enemies, including Hela, Ulic the Troll, and Enchantress, mounted in salt on the Golden Realm, Jane must find Thor and save Asgard, even if that means she must once again risk her life to become Thor herself. Twig number two of five comes from Image Comics by Scotty Young and Kyle Stram. Variants this week are by Scotty Young and Peach Romoko, and good lord, that first issue tickled me so pink. Does that sound okay? Can I say that? It tickled my funny bone. It tickled the cute bone. I don't know. It was great. Uh, it says, the death of the Pathsayer sends Twig and Splat on a journey to a mysterious lab where a premonition sheds dark light on further dangers to come. Join Eisner Award-winning Scotty Young and artist Kyle Stram as they bring us deeper into this unique dark fantasy world. Yes, okay, very cute. Finally, Dark Knights of Steel number 7 of 12 comes this week from Tom Taylor and Nathan Gooden. This is obviously DC Comics. With three kingdoms on the brink of war, Batman is in hiding, recovering from an attack and a shocking betrayal. But Batman finds he's not the only unfortunate soul to be taken from his by, in by his surprise rescuers. Strange, magical youngsters have been given sanctuary alongside the bastard prince Bruce Wayne. Will these teen outcasts change everything Batman believes in, or will they perish at the hands of a demon? Let's talk Obi-Wan Kenobi Season 1, Episode 3, which I'm pretty sure was just titled Part 3. This premiered on Disney Plus this past Wednesday. Season, season Episode 4 will premiere on Disney Plus this Wednesday, the 8th. Fun fact about this episode, you have Zach Braff, famously from Scrubs, a questionable person IRL, but he did have an amusing cameo as the driver Freck, who we see on the planet of Mapuzo, which is where the transport has taken Obi-Wan and Leia. He takes them, uh, once they do not find whoever they're supposed to be connecting with, they find him, and he takes them off, really, to betray them later. But um, he is Zach Braff, so, you know, questionable morals in IRL and as Freck. <laughs> Please don't make me go into that. Uh, the, the, the scenes of Leia and Obi-Wan Kenobi lying together um, just shows how much she is like her parents and how much Obi probably misses running with her parents. Um, both Anakin and Padme had really fairly, I mean, obviously, very extensive relationships with Obi, um, doing various adventures, and yes, Padme is very much included in that, um, so it makes sense that he kind of was able to fall into the lie so quickly and so well with her, um, and they match up everything. Of course, he accidentally calls her Leia at one point and almost ruins the whole thing, but, um, with the story of her mother having recently passed, and, you know, being very hard on him, he was able to cover that one up pretty well. <laughs> uh, but that scene was really, really well done. Everybody, you know, we're sitting here with our hands sweating, hoping that they don't get figured out. <laughs> and it also goes to show how stupid stormtroopers are. They're out here looking for a lone dude. Oh, look, a lone dude. 
can't be the guy we're looking for. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, they did claim that they are from the planet Tall, which is the first time I believe that we have seen or heard of this planet in the Star Wars universe. They said they were farmers. Um, on the ride also, they have a bit of a moment to speak just to each other, and Leia does ask Obi-Wan, uh, you know, you were the person you say you remind me of, you're talking about my, you know, my mother, weren't you? Um, are you my father? rips your dang heart out uh, and of course he responds I wish I was because he's not lying <laughs> um, so much that could have changed and been done differently and he wishes it all had all had been done differently of course we also get a mention of Obi-Wan's family um, he mentions kind of vaguely remembering a mother and having a having had a I believe he said a little brother and that he wishes he remembered more Interestingly, in the original novelization of Return of the Jedi from 1983, which was based on, I believe, one of the original scripts, Obi-Wan mentions that his brother is actually Owen Lars. This is having referenced in the uh, YA novel Jedi Apprentice, The Hidden Past. Uh, Attack of the Clones gave the Lars family very different lineage, obviously, um, and Obi-Wan's vision of his brother and family was retconned as to being a vision. Um, so Hidden Pass is now non-canon with all of that uh, uh, Owen, Obi-Wan stuff not being canon, but uh, he essentially, that was all reutilized for this show. Um, having grown up with an early sense of loss of a sibling as well could have really primed Obi to grow very close with his uh, somewhat older than possibly usual apprentice, so their age gap being a bit closer. Uh, and then he goes ahead and loses that apprentice as well, so double loss. <laughs> Just kill you even more, doesn't it? Also, at the Star Wars celebration in 2010, George Lucas apparently jokingly answered a fan question saying that Obi-Wan comes from the planet Stujon. He was not being serious. Uh, but since then, Stu John has been cited as Obi-Wan's official home in the Star Wars databank and subsequent materials. So, Stu John it is, I guess. We also see in this episode Illyria Sands of the Sands Sister. JK, it's Indira Varma playing Tala, who is a imperial uh, person who is the underground passage person he was supposed to meet with on the planet Mapuzo. She ends up catching up with them later, so it's all good. She helps out with this whole secret passageway thing. However, the, um, the Inquisitors have already been... They've already figured out Obi-Wan is on this planet because... The dude who stabbed them in the back basically just got them into trouble. So the Inquisitors are already there, and Tala has to uh, basically go ahead with with Leia while um, Obi Wan pretty much distracts them. Uh, because guess who's there with them? Friggin' Darth Vader. Also, can we just mention for a second? Welcome in, James Earl Jones. It is nice to have you back again. I don't know why I said it like that. Um, that was a very big surprise. I think they kept that under wraps, I assume, because I didn't hear about it. Um, but super, super stoked that James Earl Jones was back to voice Vader. That shit rocked. Um, 
Anyway, uh, we got a new droid here, Ned B. He is a loader droid who does not talk, but he was super ready to bash some skulls in in defense of Tala, and that was awesome. Um, in the little underground passage that Tala takes Obi and Leia to initially, we get some cool Easter eggs. The first and most obvious being Quinlan was here, or Quinlan was here. Quinlan Voss was a Jedi ally of Obi-Wan's in the Expanded Universe, and we also saw him in the Clone Wars. He struggled a lot with his dark side, and as a result, often fell under the influence of the Sith, and was brought back in the Clone Wars as a character in the episode Crisis Zero, where he helps Obi-Wan track down the escaped Hut criminal, Zero. Also among the names are... Valen Halcyon, who was renamed Hal Horn in order to hide his Jedi uh, Padawan persona during the Purge. Um, and also another name we saw there was Koran Horn, Koran, Koran, also a uh, the son of Hal, aka Valen Halcyon. We also see Rogan, Roganda Ismarin graffiti on the wall. Uh, she might be familiar to Legends fans, is now canon, yay. Um, and based on Riva's reaction to seeing the Jedi Order logo graffitied on the walls of that room when she gets there, I am betting even harder now that she is a former youngling. Um, there is no way that she has that reaction with no connection to her past and the Jedi. No way. Um, the planet that Tala ends up taking is supposedly, well, it would have been. <laughs> the, the planet that Tala was going to take Leia to um, with Obi-Wan was Jabim. It was, that is a planet we know about. That is a outer rim terrestrial planet. However, we also know that plan is not going to end up working out. Uh, we see Hayden Christensen at various points in this episode playing Anakin, who is basically Obi-Wan just kind of losing his mind and being extremely paranoid, no doubt, um, seeing now that he knows, especially now that he knows Anakin is alive and Vader. Um, yeah, he uh, he's, he's kind of losing it and he's like, seeing force visions of him everywhere practically um there's a lot of arguing in this episode among the inquisitors which it's very interesting how like political they are um about the whole like who's going to be the next grand inquisitor and who's going to tell dad first and get the credit that we found the bad guys you know dad being darth vader um you know and this is between reva and the male inquisitor it's clearly going to be a big back and forth until she probably kills him. Um, whether or not he's going to be able to get ahead of her, he kind of does in this episode very slightly. Um, but whether or not he's going to be able to keep up with that, I'm super curious how this rivalry between the two of them is going to play out. It's very fun. It's very much like an office rivalry, <laughs> um, looking for a promotion in the office, you know, which is, I find absolutely hilarious. Speaking of the Inquisitors and Vader, we also see Vader's base and the Inquisitor's base, which are interestingly kind of opposites, but they are, I would say, equally dangerous. Starting with Planet Mustafar, which is where we have Fortress Vader. Super exciting. We saw it in Rogue One. Uh, we also saw it um, in uh, 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 Revenge of the Sith as the planet where Anakin was 
burned basically by Obi-Wan, which is a punishment that he tries to give back to Obi-Wan this week, which was freaking brutal. Uh, and also something my husband pointed out is that throughout the original series, we never see anything but Obi-Wan except for above the neck. So for all we know, he's covered in brutal scars from this very incident. Um, but in any case, Vader basically sets the ground on fire with uh, molten rocks and drags, force drags Obi-Wan through it when he first sees him. That's like his initial reaction. Set the ground on fire, drag this bitch through it. So he feels what I felt when he did that shit to me. 10 goddamn years ago and it still hurts every day you saw them put those pins in him for the suit right that suit was not designed to make him feel good that suit was literally designed to make vader in pain constantly so he is constantly pissed off so he is constantly looking for revenge you see how he whipped out those random citizens and just started killing them a, he's mad as fuck, sorry. B, he knows Obi-Wan is watching and he knows that this is gonna freak him the hell out and also make him panic. Those two are kind of in the same category, but it was, oh, so cool to see all of the steps. You saw him destroyed in Revenge of the Sith. You saw him emotionally destroyed as well as physically. Now you see him 10 years on really not any better, especially mentally. And they are just constantly forcing him into this torturous suit. Oh my gosh. And he is just ready to kill anybody who breathes too loud. I get that way sometimes too. But um, just absolutely loving the performance um, I'm not going to give credit to any particular actor for this. I'm going to give credit to whoever it was who did the directing of Vader's, like, physical movements. Because they, they, they got the rage and the, I'm going to mess you up as bad as I can, like, for good. <laughs> they got that down pat and it was awesome. I love being scared of Vader. <laughs> But anyway, that was Vader's base. Uh, the uh, Fortress Inquisitorius is the Inquisitor's base, which is uh, Vader's base being lava. The Fortress for the Inquisitors is actually underwater, which is equally, I would say, terrifying as someone who has a little bit of that um, submechophobia thing. Whew, a little bit terrifying, um, but also crazy cool. Um, and it is located, in case you did not know, on the moon of Nur, N-U-R. The next episode, oh, and we did see, of course, Fortress Inquisitorius. First time we, taught, first time we saw that was uh, in Jedi Fallen Order, the video game. So next episode is going to be this Wednesday, the 8th coinciding with the first episode of Ms. Marvel for whatever dang reason. Um, but I will be covering that obviously on the next podcast episode. Young Justice season 4 episode 25 the actual penultimate episode uh, appeared on HBO Max this past Thursday. We're going to get the finale for real this coming Thursday. 
uh, in this episode, we're getting things wrapping up here pretty quickly. The Zods take a boom tube to the Fortress of Solitude, destroying its own entrance. They create a tube for their Phantom Zone inmates to join, who end up in a fight with the former Young Justice members, Nightwing, Zaytana, etc., who are trying to keep them from escaping. Lore proves his identity to his parents, and then a green eyeball floats from within his costume and changes his mother into a sorceress. It apparently came with him from the 31st century and chose her to be its companion or owner or whatever. She is the Emerald Sorceress, apparently. Nightwing goes to see where the boom tube that they're fighting in ends up and ends up fighting the Zods before being, yes, apparently killed by a blow to the head. The Zods correctly assume that their team hasn't made it through the tube because of Nightwing's teammates. Lore goes to intercept, but is warned the tube cannot stay open forever. Wally takes the Leaguers off of the Red Sun planet that they were left in on the last episode, now the Kaiser Thrall is gone and they are able to move again. The whole gang arrives on Earth, finding that the Zods have gone to the fortress. Bioship interfaces with its Kryptonian tech to keep the alarms from going off so that they can sneak in. Things start going wrong for the Zods then, kind of all at once. The General notices the homages to Superman's legacy as a hero on Earth, as his wife is more and more entranced with her new green eyeball. Just then, this tube starts to co collapse, with Lore, Zaytana, and co, and the Phantom Zone Kryptonians all still inside. And Connor Kent, now healing under the yellow sun of Earth, starts waking up. Lore exits towards his father. Zaytana's crew transports to the magic school bus. However, minus Rocket. The gang of good guys end up closing in on the fortress, but the green eye ends up warning its mistress and they attack the bioship. The bioship crashes and Connor thinks that he has again killed Megan. And the first one up is Superman, of course. He faces off with the Zods asks Connor for help, but Connor thinks that Superman is already dead. He's clearly messed up in the head. They beat him and take a boom tube to the middle of Metropolis with the whole family, the Kaiser Thrall and the dead Superman. They make a big mess, blowing stuff up and causing a whole scene, and then Ma'alafa'ak gets all the cameras in the area to turn facing them. Zod clays lame, or lays claim to the whole world by way of will and strength, he says, proving Connor's loyalty by ordering him to finish off Kal-El. And that is how it ends. Again, we'll see how that goes in the finale. I'm hoping that Megan gets through to Connor before it is too late. In the world of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, we had episode 5 premiere this past week on Paramount+. Plus. It was titled Spock Amuck and is chock full of some throwbacks, which we'll go over at the end of the episode discussion. Um, in this one, we have that Spock's engagement is basically falling apart. He has some deep concerns about his human side becoming an issue in his relationship. His partner has deep concerns about his job becoming an issue in their relationship. So they uh, they go through this like Vulcan, um, uh, it's not karma, but it looks like the word karma swap. Um, and they accidentally body swap and in their own words, hijinks ensue. Um, their use of the word hijinks in this episode had me laughing. Um, we find out about something that the crew does, also called Enterprise Bingo. While we didn't quite get a full list of what the tasks on Enterprise Bingo are, here is what we can see. It says, complete 10 items from the list below. Don't get caught. 
Use transporter to reflavor gum. Phaser stun duel. Turbo lift two floor. Turbo lift two floor shout challenge. Yelling at the same time to tell turbo lift where to go. Set the universal translator to Andorian. Medical tricorder challenge. Vulcan marsupial. And food replicator challenge. Curran fruit. So obviously some very fun Star Trek lore things. Uh, we find out in that same uh, plot line, number one's nickname, actually it's between number one and La'an, it is Where Fun Goes to Die, which they get uh, a little bit, you know, upset about <laughs> for obvious reasons. Um, and that's how they find out about Enterprise Bingo. They try doing some of the things on the bingo list, you know. Uh, uh, it's very good. Um, some fun lines from two of them. They go to play good cop, bad cop, and when Laong says bad cop first, um, she says you gotta be faster. It's it's it really they they clearly get along, and she says um, it's not because you're a senior officer, it's because you terrify people. That's a compliment. And then later, when Laong needs backup, number one says no need. I'm your backup, and Laong responds, people are idiots. You're fun. <laughs> Um, they were a very good team, obviously two very stern, similar women from two very different worlds, uh, but you, you really have to love it. Uh, the One of the main plots of the episode is that the, uh, uh, the fleet is working on getting a treaty together with a somewhat, um, I guess, new to us race who practice what they say is radical empathy. This is super, super interesting to me, to someone who is a uh, chronic people pleaser and empath, which I don't mean that in any woo-woo sense. I have, I mean, I have uncontrollable empathy, the kind that, you know, made me have to adjust my entire outlook while watching Dexter so I'd stop feeling awful about his victims and how frightened they are. That kind of uncontrollable empathy. I literally can't hear about animal trauma. It will ruin my day on behalf of the owner because I know how much pain that they are in. That kind of empath. Just wildly over in touch with emotion and feeling from everyone and everything around me. So anyway, this was a pretty cool species for them to expand on, especially from my own perspective. They are the Rongovian Proctorate. Um, and by now, something I, I, there was a couple of lines from uh, a particular article that I read from Collider. Uh, one line was saying that by now Pike understands that sometimes the best way to get someone to understand you is to prove that you understand them. And that ended up being how to get the Rongovians to treaty with them or ally with them or whatever it was. Um, another quote that made the episode, that kind of wrapped up the episode really, really well, although I'm not done discussing it, uh, from Collider, they said, each storyline in this episode follows the same narrative arc of radical empathy. Actively putting yourself in the shoes of someone different from yourself can give you a new understanding of their perspective. This episode encourages us to build connections to find out, to find solutions by taking the point of view of someone we don't entirely understand. By broadening our experiences, meeting new people, and learning to see the world through their eyes, we become more well-rounded humans. Empathy, understanding, and mutual sacrifice for good are the building blocks of that sci-fi future that Star Trek makes so darn appealing. And I really love that quote and that line because that is one I've mentioned a bunch of times that 
that particular thing there, empathy, understanding, and mutual sacrifice for good are the building blocks of that sci-fi future that Star Trek makes so appealing. That is 100% the bulk of why I love Star Trek. And also the ship of the Ronkovians, crazy cool. We find out that Chief Medical Officer Mbenga is a fly fisher. Another one of my favorite themes of Star Trek and classic Trek is the shore leaf hobbies of the crew and all the funky stuff they get up into. We find out that Nurse Chapel, or rather we get it confirmed here, that she is bisexual, avoiding commitment or strings, as she calls them. Uh, We'll see very much more of Chapel's crush on Spock, who seems to continually impress her. From Den of Geek, I found a quote that says, Spock may actually prefer to have a conventional human relationship with Chapel, but wants to make things work with T'Pring. T'Pring obviously being his Vulcan fiancé, and that does sum up the relationship very well. He wants to do the right Vulcan thing, but prefers the conventional human relationships. As for those throwbacks, I said that there were plentiful in this episode. Most of them revolve around a Star Trek, the original series episode in season two, titled uh, A Mock Time. A Mock Time? A Mock Time. Yeah, I guess. Spock Mock A Mock Time. Okay. Uh, it centers around Spock and T'Pring and their planned wedding, which ultimately does not occur. It is the first episode to use the Vulcan salute, and it introduces the concept of Pon Far. Pon Far being the Vulcan idea of, uh, from the Trek wiki page, I just took the quote to make it easier. A Vulcan time of mating and the rituals following it shrouded under a veil of mystery and secrecy. We also see... In a dream sequence that Spock has, a Lurpa, again a line from that wiki page, the Lurpa was a traditional Vulcan melee weapon consisting of a metal staff with a fan-shaped blade on the one end and a club on the other. Really, this is a genius weapon if you think about it. It takes true skill to wield and to defend from as it is equally blade, staff, and blunt weapon. Additionally, the way that the fan, uh, the blade is the shape of a fan, makes it so that you can catch it with your own weapon, catch your enemy's weapon with your own, and force it into different directions based on the shape of the blade. Additionally, Lieutenant Ortegas in this episode says that she still has scars from Alerpa. I would like to know that story. What got Lieutenant Ortegas involved in a Vulcan relationship and had it end in a Lerpa? I would like to know. In this episode, Tapring says to Spock, uh, or they say to each other, parted from me and never parted. This line references their reunion in that uh, original series episode, A Muck Time. Uh, in the dream sequence, we see his shirt ripped in almost exactly the same way that Kirk's shirt gets ripped in, again, A Muck Time, where we also have Sc- uh, Spock banging a Vulcan gong, again, happens in the dream sequence of this episode. We also had uh, the composer of this series, Nami Melamad. She reused, I believe it is a she, reused Gerald or possibly Gerald Freed's score for A Muck Time. Specifically, we get a new version of Freed's famous piece of music, The Ritual slash The Ancient Battle slash Second Cryoka, because things have to be named complicated. Finally, we get a lot of... Um, 
a lot of the green wraparound captain's tunic, which is very similar to a variant that Kirk wore famously in uh, The Trouble with Tribbles, which is a fan favorite episode, myself included. The next episode is going to premiere on Paramount Plus this Thursday, and we will be discussing it on next week's podcast episode. To wrap up this week's podcast episode, let's talk Ms. Marvel show prep. The show does kick off this Wednesday on Disney+. Um, There's been a couple of resources put out so that you can kind of familiarize yourself with the content beforehand. However, I'm still seeing a lot of people who seem to really, really be misunderstanding what's going on. Um, So let's try and just wait for the show to come out and not give any like crazy over over, you know, assumptive reactions to things, okay? Okay. Uh, Let's start off with what we learned from the Ms. Marvel fan guide provided by Disney+. Plus. It is only four and a half minutes, and it's actually very cute, so I recommend watching it if you have about five minutes. What you find out in this episode, in this uh, fan guide, I guess, very interestingly, Ms. Marvel actress Iman Vellani was actually a Kamala superfan before the show was ever announced, reading comics and cosplaying at her as school, being confused as The Flash, which is quite sad. Um, how can you not support this show knowing that? I don't know. I really don't know. It seems that they will be going to AvengerCon as part of the plot of the show, and that Kamala will be start wearing the cosplay Captain Marvel suit when she first gets her powers, or at least will be wearing it when she first gets her powers. Um, I also figured out where I had seen that She-Hulk trailer landing pose. You see a similar thing in Kamala's trailer, the arms raised up and then boom onto the ground. That is apparently the new MCU superhero landing pose, so keep that in mind, I guess, uh, for posing if you do cosplay, especially. Um, Something else that we have one of the series creators says in this behind-the-scenes thing that she says, through this series, you see she learns the extent of her powers. I am so convinced that my theory is going to be right. My theory, if you're unaware, is that they're going to do the Carol thing with Kamala. In the comics, Carol was given her powers uh, basically through Marvel originally. Um, in the past couple of years, it was revealed that her mother is actually half Cree. So instead of Marvel giving her those powers from himself, it turns out she always had those powers within her the whole time. They just had to be triggered. So when I say they're going to do the Carol thing with Kamala, she's going to find these gauntlets or whatever. She's going to put them on think that that's what's giving her the power and then find out that they are actually what triggers her innate power that she already had within her. In any case, um, it does look like there's going to be some like serious dimensional shifting or something involved. Uh, there might be a bit more spaciness to this than we kind of expect right now. And it also looks like her dad, at the very least, is aware of her Ms. Marvel identity. Finally, you get some really cool shots of the suit, which um, they also released a Marvel Legends for recently, if you're interested in that. And it does have those beautiful Islamic artistic details, uh, kind of the geometric stuff, which I'm sure there is terminology for that I am failing to grasp. Um, but it looks absolutely stunning. It was a great little detail to put in her suit, and I can't wait to see the story behind her getting her suit. If you don't know what you need to watch first, um, recommended things, obviously being Captain Marvel and Endgame, 
at the very least, you should probably just be aware of what goes down and the characters in those movies. Things that you need to know beforehand, we already know the bracelets uh, that give her her powers, so they're saying they're going to come from her grandmother, which really is just going to solidify my theory that her powers come from within her even more. Uh, her power is something that she calls embiggening in the comics, where she can extend her limbs, alter her appearance, and shapeshift in several other ways. She can basically stretch her body any way she can imagine, similar but not the same quite as Mr. Fantastic. She also has the ability to heal from any injury when she transforms back to Kamala from Ms. Marvel and labels herself as a polymorph. She often makes her fists huge to deliver powerful blows, and none of this seems like things that she cannot do with the powers as we see them uh, in this show. Additionally, it seems that there is going to be a similar design aesthetic to the show as there was in the Scott Pilgrim movie. We have a number of cast members that we are already aware of. Obviously, Iman Vellani uh, playing Kamala Khan, aka Ms. Marvel. We have Sajer Syke. I'm gonna mis I'm gonna mispronounce a lot of these, and I know that, and I suck, and I'm sorry, and I swear I'm not trying to. Um, but he is playing Kamala's brother Amir. Aramis Knight is playing Red Dagger, who goes by Kareem as his real name. Zenobia Shroff and Mohan Kapoor will play Kamala's parents, who are Muniba Khan and Yusuf Khan. Matt Lintz is playing Kamala's best friend, Bruno Carelli. Yasmin Fletcher is playing Nakia Bahadir, who is another friend of Kamala. And we have Rish Shah as Kamran. Kamran being a love interest for a short time of Kamala's in the comics before he reveals himself as inhuman um, and doesn't really choose to use them for good the way that Kamala does, and they end up parting ways. Laurel Marzin is playing Zoe Zimmer, um, who has been compared uh, as a Flash Thompson kind of character to Peter Parker. Adaku on. Okay, that is uh, Faria, and then uh, Laith Nakli as Sheikh Abdullah, and ugh, I told you I was going to suck. Travina Springer as Amir's wife, Taisha Hillman, who in the comics is fiance, and they get married through the arc of the comics. We also know that there are a number of other actors who have been cast in as yet undisclosed, ro undisclosed roles, and there is also an extreme likelihood that many, or some at least, of these characters will be featured in the upcoming Captain Marvel sequel, The Marvels. As for potential villains, um, we have Discord, who is actually Josh Richardson, the boyfriend um, of the Zoe Zinner, Zimmer character. Uh, the Inventor is a clone of Thomas Edison, who has bird DNA. Um, may or may not be showing up in the show. It's kind of, sort of, um, a leading theory. Becky St. Jude is someone who does not have superpowers, but wears plasma armor to fire energy blasts. Kaboom is a powerful inhuman who can create electricity through electrokinesis. Doc X is a computer virus uh, developed by artificial... Oh, sorry, computer virus that did develop artificial intelligence. 
Cradle is the child hero reconnaissance and disruption law enforcement who basically are just trying to take out um, child superheroes. Uh, King the Conqueror, we obviously know, is going to be an, an, a big bad coming up in the um, in the uh, Ant-Man movie. Uh, so it's possible we're going to see something leading up to him here. Also, Storm Ranger, who is a evil doppelganger of Ms. Marvel, and Captain Marvel herself could show up at some point, um, being a somewhat negative character, which could set off some kind of uh, Civil War type thing in the Marvels. So keep all that in mind. Um, also, really fun fact about Iman Vellani is she attended the same high school as Star Wars's Hayden Christensen, who, as we know, plays Anakin Skywalker. She says, We take pride in Hayden Christensen. He was in the same drama program I did. After my news got out, my drama teacher was thriving. He taught Darth Vader and Ms. Marvel. How crazy is that? Honestly, super crazy. I can't even imagine being him. <laughs> Finally, wrapping up this segment and the episode, uh, the Twitter thread from at House of Photon, which I will link below, uh, talking everything we know about the Marvels, helping lead us into the Ms. Marvel show. First off, it is coming out July 28th, 2023, and we know that the director is Nia DaCosta, who has previously worked on Little Woods and Candyman. She's hired award-winning cinematographer Sean Bobbitt, who worked on 12 Years a Slave, On Chesil Beach, Judas and the Black Messiah, and The Place Beyond the Pines. A quote from Bobbitt, When I was offered the opportunity, suddenly it made sense to me having known Nia DaCosta. A lot of the film is about the director, and I knew that through her and with her, this would be something else. We have production designer Kara Brower. She worked on Jordan Peele's Us and also the critically acclaimed film Gone Girl. We know that this was filmed using stagecraft technology, which is the industrial light and magic, uh, kind of the, the surround visuals on the stage, the way they filmed Mandalorian. We know that Brie Larson is returning as Captain Marvel, and joining her will be Tayona Paris in Iman Vellani. We last saw Captain Marvel in Avengers Endgame and in the post-credits scene of Shang-Chi. Tayana Paris will be as Monica Rambeau, as we saw her in the hit TV show WandaVision, where we saw Monica gain powers. Finally, Ms. Marvel will be starting June 8th, where we will see... Iman Vellani as Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel. We also know that Tessa Thompson, Zawe Ashton, Samuel L. Jackson, and Park Soo Joon are going to be on the show. We know that Tessa Thompson obviously is going to be King Valkyrie, Samuel L. Jackson is going to be Nick Fury, not sure about the other two. Also, Lashana Lynch is now rumored to return as Maria Rambeau after her uh, really glorious return as Captain Marvel in, well, temporarily glorious to return as Captain Marvel in Multiverse of Madness. I am not surprised people are calling for more of her in the MCU. Uh, finally, we know that the movie is going to delve into the pain and trauma of its main characters, as taken from statements by Nia DaCosta and Kelly Sue DeConnick, legendary Captain Marvel writer, in a now-deleted tweet wrote that she was actually brought in and consulted on the sequel and ultimately is super psyched with what she saw. And that's it. That's the episode for this week. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for the patrons for supporting the podcast. 
um, and for listening to whatever portion of the stuff that you did the thing to. Uh, find me online, find me on social media, join the Discord, get involved, let me know your thoughts. Um, I think I'm switching up the July Yancey Street special to be about Throg instead of about Angela, just because Throg is kind of more likely someone will see in this, honestly. Um, and more directly a Thor character consistently. <laughs> um, other news, we're going to obviously have, uh, let's see, this week we have Strange New Worlds, Young Justice Finale, uh, Obi-Wan, and the premiere of Ms. Marvel. So there's a lot, a lot coming as far as geek TV and news goes. So make sure you don't miss any episodes. And uh, we will be back again for episode 67 uh, next week, Monday the 13th of June. Thank you very much for listening. Stay hydrated. Make sure you get plenty of rest. Uh, try to avoid the heat. Definitely wear sunscreen. I don't care who you are. Wear sunscreen. Um, and uh, get sweaty about comics. Because if that makes you happy, then why the heck not? Have a great week. <laughs>